reading from Acts. Um, the reading today is from Acts, and it's in two parts. Uh, it's chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and then we move to chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So that's on page 1031, Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has sent by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the day of Pentecost came, <clears throat> they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. 
Great, Roz, thank you very much indeed. And uh, all the other readers on the reading rotor, you can breathe a big sigh of relief because Roz got the reading with all the long names. So it's very unlikely that you'll get anything like that. Phew, who better to read than Roz? Let's, as we sit with that open, page 1032, let's have a word of prayer. Further, Father, on the church's birthday, we want to join in celebration. And we ask, Lord, now by your spirit, you would teach us by your inspired word and equip us and empower us to be witnesses in our own place and further afield and to the ends of the earth. To your glory. Amen. I'll never forget the time I, I first got it while standing wobbling on a windsurfer. I'd seen that it was possible. I was by the coast of a flat sea. Uh, the wind was blowing and I'd borrowed a board and a mast and a sail and I got, uh, there was a boom on the, on the sail and uh, I had all the bits of kit on. I looked like a windsurfer. But I knew in my heart that I wasn't (laughs) because I was wobbling on this board a bit like a gorilla would wobble on a bar of soap. I was just all over the place until, uh, as instructed, I sort of got my feet in roughly the position. I'd pulled up the, the mast and I'd more or less set the sail. And it was more or less in a position to catch something of the wind. And it did. The wind just began to fill the sail, enough that I could begin to lean back against as a counterbalance to the wind with the sail. And the board began to move across the surface of the water. It began to race across the surface of the water. I was transformed from looking like a windsurfer to being a novice windsurfer. (laughs) And the difference was the power of the wind, the unseen power, benign power, wonderful power, releasing power, invigorating power, without which I could not be a windsurfer, but with which I was whooping and exhilarating across the surface of the water. It's an extraordinary feeling. I've used analogies in the past of of when you catch a wave on a bodyboard or a surface, the same kind of thing. An extraordinary good power that takes you over, that takes your best efforts and goes beyond and picks you up with it, envelops you with it, so that you become something different, transformed. A lookalike wannabe windsurfer to the real thing. In Acts We read of the story of the early church, an extraordinary story. I've been refreshing myself over this last week by just reading the opening chapters. It is breathtaking, it's exhilarating, it's exciting to see the power of God take and catch the lives of these early Christians and transform them, and through them transform the world. The long-stated promises of God through the prophets brought to bear on these ordinary, unschooled Galileans. And in Acts chapter 2, 
and particularly verse 4, and I'm really just going to center myself on that verse this morning, we read that the apostles received two things, and I want to look briefly at each of them. Firstly, on this day of Pentecost, the apostles received an infilling of the Holy Spirit. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, we read in verse 4. Fulfilling the promise of the prophets. Do you remember Jeremiah? He said, uh, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will write my laws, not on external tablets of stone, I will write my laws on their hearts. And Ezekiel, I will put my spirit in you and move you, if you like, sort of inwardly compel you to follow my decrees. Then you will live as from the inside out you are enabled to live up to the letter of the law. Pentecost is when the external demands of the law were internalized in the hearts and minds of the believers. They became an inner reality. Pentecost is when the apostles received, firstly, an inward reality. Do you notice in verse 2 and verse 3, two descriptions of what it was like as as, um, Luke attempts to get language around this extraordinary experience. He says it was like wind in verse 2, the blowing of a violent wind, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire resting on each of them in verse 3. Wind, as I'm sure you're aware, is in the Bible synonymous with power. And fire, again, as I'm sure you're aware, is synonymous in the Bible with the burning off of impurity. So uh, a goldsmith would refine his gold ore in the fire, burn off all the impurity so that what's left is totally pure gold. Symbolic of holiness, of lives that so reflect the reality of God that they clearly appear to be set apart. Power from the wind and purity refining from the fire. And that's what happened on Pentecost, this inward reality for the apostles, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, empowering them to live holy lives. Graham, is that enough photos now, do you think? I know I look wonderful. Just uh, hold it for the, for the sec and get a photo of me afterwards. We'll get someone else to take one of the two of us. Just as you can be a windsurfer with all the kit and actually no power that enables you to windsurf, I wonder, as we think about this inner reality, as we think about this, this new birth, in a sense, by the Spirit, is it possible that we've got something slightly wrong in our church, particularly in the West, as we look at the, the lives that we live collectively, the witness and the power of the church in this city in this nation. I I wonder whether actually we struggle because we've confused the secret to Christian living. I wonder whether we think that the secret to Christian living is imitation. We set up this image of Christ or of what it is to be Christ-like and we try to imagine a, a good Christian And we think, I must try to be like that person. 
I must try and imitate that image. Acts 2 and verse 4, Pentecost, the very birth of the church, rails against that. It's not imitation, it's inhabitation. It's God coming to live in us by his spirit, empowering us from the inside out. The early Christians never talked to themselves as, as um, or identified themselves as, you know, I'm a Christian or I'm a believer. Occasionally they would talk about believers. But Paul in particular, he talks about Christ in me or the spirit in me. Paul, if you like, makes himself the object of the activity. It's someone else who's driving it. It's God indwelling his heart, his mind, suffusing everything that he is. The early church was born as a result of what the apostles received, an inward reality. That's the first point. And secondly, they received in verse 4 an inward reality, the infilling of the Holy Spirit and an outward sign. The apostles on Pentecost received an outward sign. As they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And I know a good many Christians, I'm sure you do too, and maybe you're one of them sitting here this morning, who are rather like the onlookers and the guests, the the visitors to Jerusalem from all the different parts. In verse 12, maybe you too are amazed and perplexed. And maybe you find yourself asking other people or yourself, what does this mean? That God should birth the church by enabling them and releasing them to speak in different languages, a spirit-inspired language, as we read from verse 4. What does that mean? Well, I think on the big picture, God is doing some sort of housekeeping, if you like. He's doing some tidying up for the great biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. I remember speaking on this um, about a year ago. I'm sure you're familiar with the story in Genesis 11 of the the Tower of Babel. Uh, It's very interesting how Pentecost acts as the reversal of the curse at Babel. Just very briefly, uh, and actually if you read the story in Genesis 11, I was struck as I was rereading it this week, just how much emphasis there is in the narrative on language. All the peoples had the same common understanding because they had one language. And with that common understanding, Genesis 11 tells us, they decided to make a tower to reach to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. Hey, let's just uh, usurp God. Let's just kick him out of the way. We'll make ourselves God. Let's make a name for ourselves. And they were able to do this because they had one language. And God inspects this tower and he sees the futility of their ways. And so he breaks down the tower and he disperses the people. And, and here's the curse of that particular time, he confuses their languages. He makes them speak different languages so they cannot understand each other. So a common language used to usurp God and God comes and causes confusion, Babel. But Pentecost, all sorts of different languages coming together at Jerusalem where they hear the worship of God. Look at verse 11, the second half. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
In other words, God has brought all these different languages together, and through this supernatural speech, this spirit-inspired speech, he's enabled every single person to hear the praises of God in their own language. The curse of Babel, redeemed, if you like, by Pentecost. God saying, in effect, I'm doing a brand new thing. Let's, in a sense, start over. Let's fulfill all the prophecies in the Old Testament where God speaks of wanting to be amongst his people, where they hear him to the core, to the heart. You see, that's what perplexed these onlookers, all the pilgrims to Jerusalem. Look at verses 6 to 8. They weren't perplexed that they heard the worship of God. They were perplexed that they heard the worship of God from these Galileans in their own tongue. The implication in verse 7 of the, you know, aren't these Galileans speaking is, you know, they, they're not meant to be the bright sparks. These are just ordinary people. Acts later on goes to tell us that uh, Peter and John were unschooled Galileans. How come they have a grasp on all these languages? That's what's confused the onlookers here. Why has God done this? Why did God birth the church in this way? The inner reality and this outward sign, this tongue speech, this spirit-inspired language that on this occasion enabled everyone to understand and to join in with the worship of God. Well, I, I don't know, but let me put this to you. And uh, as they say, take it and test it and see if this accords and resonates with your spirit. I think that the very last thing that God wanted to do in birthing the movement of the church was to stir up human resource and human ingenuity. God could have spoken through any one of those languages. It would have been struck by Cooley's prayer about rationalism. It would have been perfectly rational, perfectly reasonable for God to take the, the sort of lingua franca of the day. Probably would have been Greek. It, it's almost certain that some, if not all, of the apostles would have been able to speak a little bit of Greek, if not fluent in it. Greek was the kind of lingua franca of that day at that time. So if God wanted to be understood by everyone, why didn't he choose an existing human language? I want to suggest that any existing human language was a derivative of Babel. And God wants to say right at the start of the birth of the church, I'm doing a new thing. I will draw you all into what I'm doing. You'll all understand. You'll all hear me speak through my language, the language of the Spirit. an unnerving question. Don't ask yourself this question until you're feeling fairly secure and strong and brave. Every now and then I pull out this question and ask myself of my life and then extend it to other areas of my life. What would be different if God left my life? What would look different, be different? What would you notice as different if God just withdrew? See, the frightening thing is that I, if I'm honest, Sometimes I'm forced to confess, not an awful lot. I go through the motions in my own strength, in my own rationality, in my own self-autonomy and, and independence. 
in my own self-reliance. And when we magnify that into our families, into this church family, we should ask ourselves maybe, what would be different if God was not here? You see, hopefully the answer is everything. We are nothing without him. And as if by way of demonstration and proof, at Pentecost, he births the early church. He wakes up Peter. Peter's had all these scriptures stored away in his head. And boom, the spirit comes, the inner reality, the outward sign. And he gabbles forth a sermon, which is really just cutting and pasting what the prophets have said. He sees it, and he's released to speak it out. And in a, if, with all due respect to Peter, it's a bit of a sort of roughshod sermon. Although you may say, who am I to speak? But in a bit of a sort of roughshod sermon, 3,000 are added to his number. I hope when I get to my deathbed, I've, I've seen 300 come to faith after all the preaching. 3,000 in one day. That's God birthing a movement, birthing the church. Pentecost, an inner reality and an outward sign. A few minutes left for us this morning to come to God afresh in order to receive from him. Just look over at uh, chapter 1. The reason why I wanted that read as well. Hopefully these are words that we can appropriate for ourselves. He says this to the early disciples. This is a God who's on the move. A God who sends. And yet interesting look. The second half of verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait But we know this is the God who commissions people to go. He sends them out into the world and yet he's saying, wait, why? Why wait? Because he knows that the apostles need to receive the gift my father promised. This is the thing about the spirit. This inner reality that inspires life in each and every one of us. Real life. Spirit life. It's a gift. Think just for a moment about a gift. When someone offers you a gift, it it, it means what? It means, well, it means that they've thought of you. They've thought so much that they've acted on your behalf. They've got something they want to give you. What's the appropriate response to someone who offers you a gift? It's to receive it. You don't say at Christmas, do you, on your birthday, oh, I, I haven't done anything to deserve it. I mean, that may or may not be true, but you just receive it. It's a gift. It wasn't given out of merit. They weren't looking for you to deserve anything. It was just a gift they wanted to give you. This is a gift that the Father promises. Just on that, the promise of the Father. We've devalued that word or the meaning of it, haven't we? Because so often we make promises which, for whatever reason, sometimes perfectly understandable reasons, we're not able to fulfill. And so what happens in other people's understanding and in our own is that we devalue the word. And so a promise isn't worth much, but not with God. God, when God speaks a promise, when God makes a promise, it will always be fulfilled. It will always come into being. The issue isn't whether, the issue is simply when. And so we're back to wait. Wait until the sure, fast promise of God, this gift which we can't earn but which he loves for us to receive, comes to us. The inner reality, the fire of conviction. 
the outward sign, empowered life, empowered living, to change our relationships, to transform our families and our homes, to make a difference in the place where we work and where we live. As a church and in our different church groupings to make an impact in our community, there's something different about the way in which we live, our value systems. We're not only living according to rationalism. We're not deifying common sense. We're listening to God by his spirit, seeing where he leads, and then following, even if it appears to defy logic sometimes. God did an extraordinary new thing in birth in the church. And we, as the recipients of that inheritance, as the ancestors, if you like, we, we live in that power. We live out of that inward reality. Let's stand together. In a few moments, we're going to sing our final hymn. It's an offertory hymn. Uh, but if you're a visitor here, please don't feel obliged to give at all. This is just for uh, those who count themselves members of this church as part of their worship. But just before we come to that song, Breathe On Me, Breath of God, a song of prayer, really, let's just be still before God. With this image of the birth of the early church, with the outpouring of the Spirit, filling the apostles manifesting itself in this outward sign. Let's just be quiet before the Lord. Conscious that there are one or two of us who feel dry. We feel wearied by busyness. Life and living just seems uh, so much of an effort. Our own effort. We've been trying to imitate Christ, perhaps, rather than allowing him to inhabit us. And the promise of the prophets is for you right now. Can I suggest, if you'd like to receive a fresh infilling, or maybe for the very first time, you're asking God to come and fill you, why don't you, as a sign, just hold out your hands as if you were receiving a, a present, a box, a gift. It's a sort of physical way, if you like, of saying to God, Please, come and fill me afresh with your spirit. You're asking him for a renewed inner reality. That your life in some way through praise or proclamation might demonstrate the outward sign. God at work. Just a few minutes as we allow the spirit to come. Some of us battle with fear here and worry. What, what will happen? You, you recognize the first inklings, if you like, of the Lord by his spirit. And you, then, you, then you close up because you're worried or 
frightened or, or fearful. I understand that. But if God is a God of love, if God is a good God, if he only knows how to give good things, then what is there to fear? As you recognize him, welcome him. Just in your heart, just say, thank you, Lord. Welcome him in. There may be particular areas of your life you're thinking of or conscious of right now. Why don't you look at those areas with him? Allow the wind of his spirit to transform you and those issues, those areas. Let him come. Well, now we're going to continue uh, in a place of acknowledging God's presence. Some of us will do that through uh, singing. It may be actually that just as we continue to stand, you want to continue to wait in that place of receiving, of acknowledging God, of uh, recognizing the inner reality, giving birth to release and new life. We're going to sing our final hymn, Breathe on Me, Breath of God.
Let's remain standing as we give thanks to God for his provision and goodness. Heavenly Father, for the gift of life by your spirit, we give you thanks and praise. And this part of the overflow of our gratitude, these gifts and offerings, please help us to use them wisely so that others may come into new life in your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's sit or kneel for our final prayer of blessing. May the peace of God, which goes beyond our understanding, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be amongst us and remain with us always. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen.